any FI that looks at their data that they have across their customer base, they would see Coinbase's and Crypto.com and in all these transactions coming out, there's significant usage of crypto inside of their customer base. They're simply not participating in that. And so how do we get RFIs to participate? Because what we found was that there is a segment that are, are super crypto nerds and they want all of the day trading, you know, the full spectrum of offerings that fintech providers have. But there's another large segment that wants to participate in the space, but doesn't is concerned about going out and moving money and, and establishing a relationship with a non-financial institution. So welcome to Humanizing Software, where we explore our ever-evolving relationship with technology and its impact on our professional and personal lives. Hear incredible stories and gain valuable insights from global industry leaders as we discuss their relationship with software and how it's developed over the course of their career. As technology continues to evolve and brings us closer together, it should enable people to do what they do best while we uncover what they do best with the help of technology. And now your host, Andrew Tall. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And welcome to today's livecast, our 33rd episode on humanizing software, where we explore this concept known as people-driven technology, what that means to us, not only from a business, but also from a personal aspect as well. Visit us at our website at tailwindsw.com, engage with us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and join the conversations as we explore this ever-evolving concept of everybody's using software and how do we make it more human to enable us to be able to do those things that we need it to do that can make us be the very, very best version of ourselves as well as others as well. Today, I'm very pleased to have join us a special individual that is here not only in Austin, but that I also consider a good friend. Ryan Hollister, the Senior Director of Engineering, joins us from Q2 today to explore this concept. Ryan comes to us with over 18 years of experience in a variety of different technology and technology leadership roles, specifically over the last nine years, not only in FinTech, but the last several years leading some key customer digital engagement initiatives with the team at Q2. So as we dive into today's topic, Please join me in welcoming Ryan Hollister to our conversation today. Good morning, Ryan. Morning, Andrew. How are you? I am doing just great. It's a Tuesday morning and uh, excited to have our conversation. I know you and I get the chance to interact on a pretty frequent basis during the weeks, um, and I'm always appreciative of that, but very glad to have you on our conversation today. So welcome. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you. Excellent. As we always start off our conversations, the first and simplest, most straightforward question is we like to give everybody the opportunity that's joining us an opportunity to get to know our guests. So Ryan, please share with our audience the Ryan Hollister story. Sure, sure. Um, so yeah, my name is Ryan Hollister, uh, originally born and raised in, in Massachusetts, uh, went to school there high school, college up there, and uh, about 13 years ago, uh, moved with my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, down to, to Austin, Texas, um, just looking for, you know, fresh start, cheaper cost of living at the time, more of a technology software industry uh, down here. And so it was it was a great time to move. Uh, it was it, it's, it is an awesome city to surround yourself with with other, you know, uh, people building interesting and cool technology, whether you get to work directly with them or just hear and learn and, and uh, conversate with them like yourself, uh, you know, founded down here. And so uh, family man now, three kids, little ones. And so they keep me plenty occupied uh, during the during the days and weeks. And so uh, I like to golf, uh, spend a lot of time on the golf course, try to get out there as much as I can. But uh, other than that, you know, just really focused on uh, career and, and this technology that we're building and the market that we're serving, which is uh, financial institutions on behalf of Q2. Excellent. Um, we would dive in briefly to the conversation on all things golf. However, that would be a very brief and um, painful for anyone who's ever been out with me on the links conversation. I, I seem to have at least every once, okay, maybe more than once, every single round that I play, a shot or two or three that seems to somehow defy the laws of physics. 
um, you can ask a number of folks again that have golfed with me and they, they would be absolutely happy to regale you with tales um, associated with that. Ryan, you've had the chance um, over the last several years to take a great leadership role um, at a company that I'm quite fond of here in town, uh, Q2. Um, we've obviously partnered with you guys on a number of different engagements. We've really um, uh, not only broken bread together, but broken through some new um, different types of how do we make software work for a number of different key financial institutions? Let's talk a little bit about your um, starting off with Q2, your initial role that you took at Q2 and how that's evolved to now running Senior Director of Engineering and what that means in terms of the customer experience with different folks that you're interacting with. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I joined Q2 in 2013. Uh, the company was probably about 250, 300 employees uh, large uh, at that point, maybe, uh, yeah, probably about nine years into its existence. And so it's, it's, it had a pretty, it's had a pretty good run when I joined, but it was reaching that, you know, that inflection point where it was, you know, time to really grow and scale the company beyond this kind of startup mentality, you know, we, the company is already obviously on a trajectory to go public. And I think the financial institution software space that we're in, it kind of necessitates probably a little bit earlier of an IPO uh, going public than, than most industries, just because with going public obviously brings in, you know, more uh, auditing and, and accounting insights and uh, uh, overview and, per and perspective that, you know, when you're private, you don't necessarily have to meet those, those uh regulatory kind of requirements. So uh, went, went public, uh, it was fun, it was exciting. Uh, that was my first you know, company to go public with. And so when I joined, uh, we were kind of re rebuilding our UI layer of it. And so it was a historically a .NET stack. And so we kind of uh, decoupled a variety of pieces of which I, I focused mainly on the UI part of it, really positioned ourselves to to you know, grow the UI uh, aspects, the user experience aspects, because what seems like not that long ago in 2013 was actually a pretty substantial amount of time ago, and so back then, you know, mobile was not necessarily the first thing. So being mobile first was pretty innovative and, and leading edge at that point, and so having a code base that we could serve in the mobile and on the desktop channel was pretty important. So rethinking how we built that UI was kind of the first go. And so spent, you know, good, good handful of years over there on engineering, you know, you know, uh, a, a leader on the technology side, but then moving into people leadership there as the team grow and as the company grew Q2, just for reference now is probably about 2,100 people. So it's been pretty substantial year over year growth since, you know, well, since the beginning, but even since I joined. Um, and so, when you're in a growing company, there's lots of opportunities to to move into leadership, and so I did without a leadership to kind of refocus on engineering. And you know, more recently, uh, probably about four or five years ago, got to move back into uh, people management and, and kind of grow a new team with within Q2 that that you know has been fortunate to work with work with yourselves in, in that capacity. Excellent. And the concept of you guys growing from in the last nine years from 250 folks to now over 21, 2200 different folks um, is something that I think is substantial because you, you mentioned inflection point um, and you mentioned how uh, and it looks like you guys, if I'm not mistaken, Q2 is now one of the top five public publicly traded largest employee companies in the city of Austin, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I don't know for sure, but it would, it certainly wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I think it's probably a lesser known company. Well, not as less known now that we are sponsoring soccer stadiums. Uh, so that really brought the brand uh, forward for sure. Um, but, you know, we always sold software to banks and credit unions. It wasn't a, you know, a, a consumer oriented brand like a Bizarre Voice or Adele is, right? And so uh, when people said we work for Q2, they didn't really know what that meant. But it is a rather substantial, you know, Austin success story where, you know, founded here, grew up here, went public here, um, you know, serves 20 million end users in, across 450, 500 finan U.S. financial institutions. So, I mean, it is a substantial company with, you know, substantial record of growth. And so, um, yeah, we're located up in the, the far northwest corner of Austin. At least that's where the offices are. And 
rather bare offices these days. Not not too many people coming in, but uh, there are people, and so um, we get to come in. I'm in the office right now, and so um, yeah, pretty good Austin success story. Of course, now we have offices around the globe. Several items I want to touch base on relative to that, and what's interesting is in previous live casts, obviously. I've had the blessing of um, having conversations with folks literally across the globe um, where uh, they we are separated by this screen, yet we're having this conversation. We're having this opportunity to converse. You and I are literally separated, I think, at this point by perhaps two or three miles, <laughs> or maybe as the crow flies from where um, my home office is and, of course, where Q2's office is here in Austin. Um, that success story of you guys, um, and I'm very, very pleased to have seen that you guys uh, um, sponsored Q2 uh, uh, Stadium, um, because as much as I can't and won't talk about golf, I'll talk about soccer until the cows come home. Uh, the stadium is gorgeous. The experience is fantastic. Um, the team, and whether it's Austin FC or the U.S. men or women's national teams have been a joy to actually watch in person there. So that entire experience, very family-oriented, also very rowdy, very um, raucous, and uh, just just really fun. Have uh, um, if uh, for those folks here, local or otherwise, follow follow the team, follow the stadium. It's it's, it's a great experience. Um, and I think about that, and I mentioned that specifically because it, uh, we speak to the experience side. Um, I actually did not know that you guys were up to about 20 million end users with 450 financial institutions that are um, all over the place um, and, and located uh, from various small to medium sized credit unions to medium and some large sized banks and other, again, financial institutions. But serving 20 million folks from a mobile web and comprehensive capability. Um, let's talk a little bit about what you've seen, and you mentioned it. When you first started in 2012, mobile first was words only. Now, mobile first is kind of table stakes to just make sure you're in the game. And Q2 seems to have taken a great leadership position um, with other digital banking providers in terms of not only what that experience looks like, but how to involve other parties, other uh, excuse me, other technologies, software or otherwise, into that experience. Can you walk our audience through what that transformation has looked like for Q2 from going from when you started initially, hey, we know we need to be mobile. Now it's 2022. There's so much that has happened. Walk us through that evolution, if you would, please, Ryan. Yeah, yeah, you know, the, the evolution has been pretty dramatic. I mean, it, yes, it is nine years, and so nine years is an eternity in, in technology terms. But, what, you know, when I first joined, there it was a it was a feature-leading kind of thing, right? So remote deposit capture, taking a picture of your check and, and getting, you know, instant deposits, that was a pretty differentiated feature. And, and so you had all these features that you could come out with that, but they're banking features at their core, right? And so came out with contextual PFM, which basically brings in account aggregation and categorization into the digital banking uh, experience in probably 2015. And so we kept adding these, you know, banking functions and digitizing some of these banking functions. Um, and so those were kind of the things that, that we led with over the years. And you're right. So we went from, you know, mobile was a thing that you had to have, um, to serve some of the population, but the vast majority logged in on their, their computer or laptop. And then tablets came out, right? And so people weren't really sure where where the tablet fit in. But you know, going with the mobile first approach at this point is is what you have to do, right? And because I mean what we're seeing is you know upwards of 60 to 70 percent of all logins are are mobile at this point. And so although the sessions are normally smaller shorter and uh, there's more of them, of course. People still do log in from their browser to do different types of transactions, but the quantity of logins has gone up, and then the percentage of, of those logins being from a multiple device is you know, through the roof. And so when we look at what we're trying to offer to our financial institutions who run our software, it's an experience that they can offer their end users that is competitive with what used to be, you know, Bank of America and Chase, and to some extent that is still the competition, but that, that's that been fairly normalized with our software. We have every feature and function that Bank of America and Chase and all the big big guys have. So our our financial institutions can easily compete with, with those guys because then they come in with the, 
the white glove, high touch customer service, like can't beat what our you know A pluses and United Heritage's and, and amplifiers of the world can offer on the customer service, like Bank of America and Chase just can't compete there. So technology, feature and functions, plus awesome customer service was has always been the recipe for for success for our customer base. So that's literally putting the human back into the technology equation. A good technology will take you so far, but having the ability um, from a good technology perspective to, to make things, to, to, to cross that last digital mile um, or that last digital step even with individual um, in co- consumers is something that's pretty critical is what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, yeah, at the end of the day, the money moves, you pay your bills, you swipe your debit card what can we really bring that Bank of America and Chase isn't going to be able to offer? And it's that local community impact of these financial institutions. And, you know, the the U.S. market is, is pretty unique uh, compared to the rest of the world in terms of what their financial institutions market is. I mean, when you look at Canada or Europe, generally the, the countries are dominated by two or three or four financial institutions. And that's really all people you know, bank with and, and hold their funds with. And so when you look at the U.S. market, there's probably about 4,000 financial institutions across the United States. And so it's just a, a tremendously different market. And so how do, how do those smaller financial institutions survive? Um, they have to have the technology because people just won't stand for it anymore to not have the technology. But really how they survive is how to impact on their community and offering uh, you know, a human person, personable aspect to that banking relationship. Great comments there, Ryan. And I want to explore several of them a lot deeper um, and, and, and a couple of different fronts, including on the personal front. For me, um, I have a number of banks that I actually bank with, including one of those aforementioned that you mentioned that are on the bigger side. I also have several local here that, I'm, uh, that I also have relationships with that I'm very pleased and even more so pleased on a better front um, because it seems to be more of a closer personal touch that's associated with that. I would say for me, from a personal aspect, literally everything that I do from a banking relationship perspective is going to be on my device, on my iPhone in this case. Um, the only time that I can't, that I'll still use a browser, is whenever I need to pull a statement and send it to um, my uh, personal accountant. Um, and that's something that has not, it, it, at least from a use case perspective, isn't as easy to do on the phone as it is from a browser. And outside of that, um, I, I'm struggling to think of any instances where I can't get done most of those things that are going to be the everyday, whether it's checking status, transferring funds, um, making sure some payments are getting made, whatever that might be, all of that is quite easily handled with the touch of a button um, with the with this particular device. And I think that's something that has changed quite dramatically. Even the ability, most importantly, for folks to um, do something as simple as, oh, by the way, take a picture of and deposit a check so that it's in your account sooner rather than, you know, several years ago, having to get it, get it in the mail, which can always be a sporty proposition in this day and age, um, get that paper check, endorse it, take it over to the teller or through the bank or deposit it through an ATM. And what was the only way five, six, seven, eight, nine years ago of doing something now is, wait a minute, I have a check. What do I do with this again? I can't even remember what I do with this again. So that that uniqueness of how technology has enabled that to come to to occur is quite important. And I want to dovetail into the customer service side of the equation. Uh, and this is on two different fronts. Um, my wife and I just needed to uh, shop for something. Um, and here's a shout out to Lowe's um, in particular. We need to pick up something. And as it was being delivered, I heard a crash around the corner in front of my house and knew that this was not necessarily a good thing. Sure enough, the item that we had purchased was in the driveway and and not intact. Um, So my awesome bride, Megan, had bought it. We had got it delivered. It came three days early, which was exceptional in this day and age. Um, And we were all excited until the crash. Well, she took the ownership on it because she had ordered it, um, contacted Lowe's customer service, worked with two different folks. And that took the experience from a, A, we were great that it was delivered, but it was not delivered well. So that part of the experience wasn't great. 
But the customer service from Lowe's in particular, two different ladies that my wife talked to, was exceptional. And she made a point of calling that out. And it was that individual touching. Everything we were doing was via technology. We ordered it. It was delivered. We got tracking on it. It was showing up. The human side came in, dropped it. (laughs) It was what it was. But then we were quickly able to go in and actually had a very pleasant in-store, yes, they're still going back into stores, in-store experience, getting it exchanged and picking up the new item and bringing it home last night. All of which to say, it was a unique blend of an experiential perspective of leveraging the device to buy something online that five or six years ago you wouldn't even thought of, and then having it delivered, having a problem with it, and bringing the humans back in, actual people who care, to fix the problem and then interacting and making all of that come back together. So it's that customer service side that is something that seems to be innate to Q2's nature. I have seen this not only obviously, Ryan, with you and your team, but throughout all different levels of the organization. Let's talk a little bit about the culture of Q2 as you guys seem to have captured a little bit of that magic in a bottle of putting the customer first and asking the questions about from a digital experience, trying to make sure that you're understanding their experience as best as possible. Can you walk us through the culture of Q2 a little bit? Yeah. You know, Q2's guiding principles, which we, which we have 10 have been the the same 10 uh, since, you know, it's founding. And I think all of them without reading you them one by one kind of, focus on of like doing the right thing when nobody's looking. The customer is always right. They they know what they're asking for and and keeping an eye out for them and making sure that you, we're partnering with them. And I think what I try to focus in and try to have my team think about most is like, how do we take this relationship that we have with our financial institutions who, of course, pay us money and keep the bills and keep the bills paid and keep the lights on? How do we take that from a vendor customer, you know, relationship to a partnership relationship? And because, you know, we're in this together, we're not going to be successful at Q2 unless our our financial institutions are successful, right? We can sell them and make amazing software, but if, if it doesn't get out to their end users and their end users don't appreciate it and doesn't doesn't serve a purpose for them, then then really what's the point? We'll all we'll all end up being with four four banks left in this country and, and Q2 will have no reason to exist and, and our FIs will, will be gone. And so, you know, getting on the phone, talking through the problem with customers and making sure that we understand what it is that they're hearing and they're seeing from their end users really is is probably the most important part, I think. And, and because what I've learned over the nine years here is that, uh, you know, our customer base, whether it's one of our largest financial institutions or one of our smallest, they have a specific culture themselves. They have a specific way. They have a specific uh, market segment. They have a niche. They have a region of the country that they serve. They have a you know specific customer base that they're trying to to grow and, and serve. And so that means that they may have similar problems, but the solutions to those problems could be different depending on the financial institution. And so giving them the tools uh, to solve the problem in the way that they need to solve it is probably what really drives my organization. And the way that I see that is providing, you know, partners like yourself so that they can go and solve their problems themselves, right? Because I think if they always depend on Q2 to solve their problems, Q2's, you know, challenged with, you know, we're going to go look at the big problem set and come up with a solution or a couple solutions that try to solve solve it in a way that addresses as many FIs as possible, but that doesn't mean that it's a one size fits all. And so the tools that we build and, you know, offer and provide to you and our, our partners really empowers them to solve the problems as they need, that they need it solved and not necessarily a one size fits all. So you, a couple of things there, the culture itself, you guys are, that's that putting that customer first and the customer always right side. Um, that, that's first and foremost, yet you guys have actually built out a pretty unique ecosystem that um, in my mind seems to be ahead of a lot of other folks that are in the space about enabling the smaller to medium-sized banks to be able to be 
quite selective about what different types of other services, products, technologies, offerings um, that are available for them to add or to, to add to their offerings essentially for their end customers. So John and Jane Doe are members um, of A plus Federal Credit Union here in Austin, as an example, or United, excuse me, University Federal Credit Union as well. Um, both of which have their own particular needs, whether it's a home loan, a car, a second mortgage, um, some sort of bill paying mechanism, um, some sort of, especially during COVID, we were asked quite a bit about virtual lobby chat adding in and other ways of non-in-person lobbying interaction, um, courtesy of COVID. And you guys were really responsive, not only in the diversity but type of offerings that you continue to add to the mix just to kind of stay ahead of that curve from a digital experience perspective. So I have seen, I have witnessed in a number of cases, and we've been quite blessed at Tailwind to work on a number of these with you guys. Let's talk a little bit about John and Jane Doe. So they're two of the 20 million folks that are part of a financial institution that's partnered with Q2. Um, they have a particular need that they want to experience or express. It's what they view as, gosh, I'm banking with this particular institution, not only because they're letting me do those things I wanna do, but also because of the actual experience, customer service wise and otherwise. How is Q2 staying abreast as much as possible of the current trends in the industry and not just trends, those things that might be faddish, kind of fly by night, but those that are important to make sure that you're incorporating into the platform. How are you guys approaching that? Gosh, we can be all things to all people, but it's really tough and we need to focus on these particular areas. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So, right. So the, the competition went from Bank of America, Chase and Wells Fargo, you know, five or nine years ago. And and we basically gotten parity for RFIs with them. Now the real battle is out there with the direct-to-consumer fintech players, right? Where, where you know, people are starting to just say, "Do what is a checking account?" Like even the term "checking account" sort of sounds archaic when you spend when you spend time thinking about it, right? Because how many checks are you actually writing? That's like the last resort where you guys can't agree on a, an interoperable way of exchanging money. And so um, trying to get our financial institutions in a position where they can be the beyond just a transaction, a place that I deposit my paycheck and maybe I swipe my debit card or a place that I pay my credit card bill, right? So there's simply a, a place that you can put money in and take money out that that's an okay relationship. They're really good at that. They'll protect your funds. You have, you know, significant confidence that they're not going to uh, be a fly by night kind of thing. But on the other respect, there's all these fintech players that are vying for, you know, more niche, more personalized experiences. And so when you go open a Venmo account or a Square Cash account or, or something along those lines, they're starting to eat away at the underpinnings of the the financial institutions that we have right to the extent that oh now you're keeping a balance on venmo it's not simply just sending money they're they're holding a balance you know they're going to come in and offer a, a debit card that you can swipe and pay from that venmo balance or that square cash balance and so what we're projecting in the future is if those things are happening today already and that those technology companies are obviously nimble well-funded have lots of engineering and technology and start from a technology perspective. How do we keep our A pluses of the world, you know, relative and competitive with them, right? And so it is hard, right? Because when Jane Doe decides that she needs to pay somebody and hopefully she looks to her financial institution first and doesn't find an, an offering that meets her needs, she's going to turn to to Venmo, her friends are going to say, "Oh, just Venmo me the money, or just send me Square Cash the money," and so boom! Right now, now she's a, a Venmo customer, right? The onboarding is super light, super fast, and now it just starts to eat away. It's like the boiling of the frog, I think, where you don't really realize it until it's too late that you know your your fundamental business has been pulled out from underneath you, and so trying to make sure that when Jane Doe has a problem or has a financial event 
you know, along her financial journey that hopefully she still looks to A plus or any of our customers first and says, let me see if A plus has that P2P transfer capability so I can pay my friend. Let me go see if they have, you know, financial wellness. Uh, let me see if there's wealth management. Maybe I can buy crypto, right? I mean, I think all those spaces are super popular right now. So when I go open up a Coinbase account, Coinbase is going to want to retain that funds, even if I move those funds out of crypto. So how do those funds, which is the lifeline of a financial institution, how do those funds stay within the ecosystem of RFIs? And it starts by having the features and the functions that that an end user needs all available within digital banking. Well, and, and you just brought up several points that I think that are quite, quite interesting there. I don't, uh, nobody wants to be the blockbuster to Netflix. Nobody wants to be um, uh, ir- irrelevant where Xerox u- used to um, own and have everything from a copying perspective. And that's less and less relevant across the board. Um, Blackberries used to be um, something that was quite prevalent and positive. And everybody laughed um, when, and especially uh, was in a meeting with Microsoft where they were poo-pooing the idea of um, Apple with uh, coming out with their first Apple phone um, many, many years ago, 2005, 2006 oh. timeframe. Now you look um, and you see the technology landscape relative to those who are innovating and surviving versus those who are, eh, we don't need to worry about that. People are always going to write checks. People are always going to be wanting to go ahead and interact with the lobby, uh, a teller in a lobby. Well, not exactly. And we're seeing that, obviously, there was Web 1.0. Now people are talking Web 2, Web 3. And I know we've done some work with you guys um, on, uh, and we publicly had published this with NYDIG, um, the interaction and the uh, integration with Q2 that um, I believe it was one of the, if not the first, crypto offering available to John and Jane Doe uh, through Q2? Um, is it, a, a, is that the case? And B, let's talk about that because I think it's a great use case of you guys kind of staying on that nimble front end, uh, front edge of um, offering people what they need when they need it. Yeah, uh, we were, yeah. So we NYDIG is a technology provider out there that, that offers cold storage of, of crypto. And so it's not leveraged crypto like, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the players out there. It is it is the opportunity for uh, financial institutions who they're solely focused on to offer buy, sell, and hold of Bitcoin inside digital banking. So it's a closed network. You can buy from your checking account. You can hold it. You can sell it back into your checking account. You can't make payments with it. And so we were the first, you know, they came to us and they, they showed us the market opportunity because going back to the discussion around the financial institutions, any FI that looks at their data that they have across their customer base, they would see Coinbase's and Crypto.com and, and all these transactions coming out, right? They're, they're coming out or they're coming in. So there's significant usage of crypto inside of their customer base. They're simply not participating in that. And so, you know, how do we get RFIs to participate? Because what we found was that there is a segment that are, are super crypto nerds and they want to they want all of the day trading, you know, uh, the, the full spectrum of offerings that fintech providers have. But there's another large segment that wants to participate in the space, but doesn't is concerned about going out and moving money and, and establishing a relationship with a non-financial institution. So market analysis said that there was significant uh, underserved market here. And so. We partnered with NIDIG and, you know, thanks to basically the technology that we built and the ability to identify that market opportunity and not have to internally adjust our roadmap and already established priorities, we were able to go to Tailwind here and just say, here's what we need built. You know the tools, you know the technology, you know our customer base, work with NIDIG, build the integration, and, and when you're done, kind of our roadmap will meet you out there and we'll be able to take over from there. But just the flexibility to identify the market opportunity and start working on it right away without dramatic disruption to our internal already existing roadmap and priorities was was a huge win for us um, because, you know, you don't want to wait for the next roadmap cycle to come around to identify a market opportunity because it may have already passed at that point. And so you're right. So we have NIDIG. Uh, it's a great integration. It's seamless. It's embedded. Uh, it's very easy to get up and running for our financial institutions. But that said, 
it's not for every FI, right? I mean, it's it's an offering that's sitting on the shelf that that any of our customers could take. But they don't have to. And so we just want them to know that they have the opportunity to to go after that market if they want to and not be beholden to, you know, Q2 establishing it and building what we want. And so um, it's been a, it's been a really good exercise in what kind of this empowering technology of the Q2 Innovation Studio can be, not just for external customers and uh, partners, but also for Q2 as well. So it's interesting because I was having that uh, a conversation this morning with Chris, um, who's one of the senior execs at Pulsate, who I know that you know and we're currently working on an engagement. Um, he and his team are based over in Ireland um, and had an early conversation with him this morning um, on a number of different fronts. And I loved his comment during our conversation, uh, Chris's and my conversation this morning, which was, we have to move fast. I can't find enough folks that are able to keep us moving as fast on as many different platforms to get in front of as many, essentially Jane and John Doe's um, as possible. Um, and it was interesting for him because that's something that I've heard throughout not only my conversations with Chris, but just about every member of his team this sense of urgency, this need to be agile and different and responsive. Um, and you guys have demonstrated this quite a bit. And I know it goes back to the core fundamental values that Q2 emanates um, as part of your kind of operating structure. But as you're trying to figure out um, the ability and financial services in many cases, um, I will loosely say might not be viewed as the most forward thinking or able to be flexible and adapt um, as often as other different types of industries. They're very set in or a number of institutions are very set in their ways. How do you guys differentiate with not only your existing Q2 customers, but folks that are looking to come on with Q2 about balancing that needs of the way things have always been done versus, hey, there's a faster, better way and you've got a substantial portion, not all, but a substantial portion of your user base that's saying, we want to move faster. So how do you guys at Q2 kind of represent that balance between customer needs, wants, and demands, given that diverse level of diversity? Yeah, I think it's it's a partnership approach between us and the customers. You know, the customers that when, when we're on prospect calls, or, you know, they're long sales cycles, but we try to establish the relationship as, as a partnership, right? That's what's going to be most successful. If they're just looking for a traditional, what does your software do? I'm going to go buy it and then I'm going to run it. It's just not going to be successful for, for anybody. And, and, you know, they're, they're making long-term commitments. Digital banking is probably one of their most important partners, if not the most important partner that they're choosing and that's going to run for five, seven years at least, right, as a general kind of way a contract goes. And so five or seven years from now, I mean, we're, you know, we're going to be nearly in the next next decade. And so what is that going to look like? So they have to make decisions now that are setting themselves up for future success down the road and, and putting them in a position that as the market opportunities continue to present themselves and compete with uh, with the traditional services, they have to be on a platform, on a piece of technology that allows them to go address those needs as they come, right? I mean, God forbid we have another, you know, black swan event like COVID, but those events, you need to have a technology that you can adapt quickly on, right? So that you can go say, this is the the challenge I have. This is the the solution that I want built and not not have to wait for, you know, the long turning of, of, of some of the bigger bigger ships to come and say, well, we've already got a plan. We can't really pivot now. I think the innovation studio and partners like yourself, give them the opportunity to immediately address the thing and, and move moved on that thing, you know, rather quickly. And so it doesn't have to be everything, right? I think Q2 strategy is, is a platform strategy in its truest sense. Like we have an underpinnings that you can build almost anything on top of, and we're going to continue to move uh, our offerings forward. And we have, you can take our offering out of the box and it'll be perfect. You run it. It serves all of the digital banking needs that you could ever want. But what we say is start off with 90% and fill in the remaining 10% versus, you know, what our competition may be is here's 10%. You can build the remaining 90%. Yes, it can do absolutely anything you want, 
But building that remaining 90% is, is a monumental effort, especially for a financial institution, you know, who doesn't have nearly the engineering staff needed to build that 90%. That's, that's a pretty substantial lift and the time to market on that and, and the overall cost is going to be way underestimated like any other software project. And so getting out there to market, getting your end users feedback, iterating fast and, um, and you know, I think the tool's got to be there to do that, but not putting the full onus on the FI and kind of being a partner along the way is, is an important aspect of it. You started and ended that answer, Ryan, with partner. And I find that quite interesting. You began the conversation with when you are initially engaging with somebody about potentially utilizing with Q2, you sit down with them, you're building the relationship to understand what it means to be a partner, not a vendor, not a uh, somebody that, yeah, here, take this and go away, not a transactional based component, but something based on actual real, um, the, the, the real components of those things that are most important to establishing the foundation of a relationship. And, and I want to dive a little bit deeper on that. Obviously, from Tailwind, and you're very, very familiar with this. Literally, the reason this podcast started almost a year ago this week um, was because we were passionate about this concept called software as a relationship, or SAR. Everybody's heard of platform as a service or software as a service, um, or even infrastructure as a service, um, or most folks in the technology realm have really kind of become familiar with that, especially over the last five or 10 years. What is different about our approach to this is very similar, and I think this is why we've partnered so well between Tailwind and Q2, is our approach is the more transactional something becomes, the higher of a percentage chance that it's going to have to be a failure. Because there's a simple expectation that somebody's doing something, exchanging something, and it's over. We're not interested in the doing, exchanging, and it's over. And it's interesting, I had a conversation this morning, we were kind of talking about it before we went live here, of an entity that was overseas that was looking for a transactional vendor. And it was quite evident during the course of our conversation that this was not going to be a match for our team at Tailwind versus what they needed to have done. Could we have done that? 100% we could have done that. But the few interactions that I had and then a couple of other members of our team had with this team, it was very, very clear that there was a hierarchical, it's our way, this is the way that you guys are gonna do things, you must, you must, why isn't this ready? We talked about this last night, we're talking about it again this morning, why haven't you put together an extensive presentation on this? And the comment was, wait a minute, we wanted to have a conversation about the needs and the expectations. And it looked on a number of different fronts um, and it wasn't just by me, but other members of our team. We're going, time out. This, this isn't a relationship. This is a one-way street um, where we're being dictated to relative to the way things have to be done, the processes that have to be followed. And by the way, the way things have to be done and the processes that have to be followed are only about 15, 20, maybe 30 years old. It is literally the old way and the long way of doing things. And the agility, the flexibility, the ability to have people understand and kind of work collaboratively, collaboratively together, none of that existed. So at the end of the conversation, it literally was a, you know what guys, um, best of luck, but we're not gonna actually be a good partner for you guys. Um, and, and it's probably best for, and if we can help you guys in some other ways, awesome, but it's, it's probably best for us that there's no need to continue conversations. Um, and we had a debrief conversation after that. Um, and to a T, the entire team was absolutely, there's relationships that can be built. There's great partnerships that can be built. And in some cases, there's going to be the, inst the instance where if people aren't getting it, so to speak, that's perfectly fine. But there's ways in which that we like, we at Tailwind have learned how to be successful and do business the right ways. And it really is this fundamental aspect of software as a relationship. You guys get it at Q2. We've been doing this for a number of years and it's something that embodies us, um, not only from a who we are, um, but how we like to do things. And it speaks to the subtitle 
of the live cast that we're doing. We talk about humanizing software, but the subtitle is people-driven tech and the importance of people being part of that. So my question to you, Ryan, and we've talked about this, I know, a number of different times. When you hear those three words that are literally the subtitle of our live cast, people-driven tech, what resonates with you? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about. When I, you know, one thing that I've, you know, felt and in, in tried to, to build this team that we have now around is the idea that having for a developer or anybody, you got to, to solve a problem, you got to have kind of the full context of a problem. And so getting the full context of the problem does mean doing some non technology things, right? It's not just about writing the code and writing as fast as possible and writing with this minimal bugs. You know, when I talk to growing engineers on my team and they try to anticipate what's next, how do I get to the staff engineer? How do I get to be a principal engineer? How do I get to be a fellow at Q2? It becomes less about the actual writing of the code. At some point, you can only type so fast and you can only write so much code really what becomes the most valuable part is is the human aspect of engineering right which is getting on a call understanding the customer understanding their challenges what the constraints are and coming up with a solution that can be executed on with the right you know right timeline and right functionality that they need and you know a senior engineer and a, a principal and fellow probably spends a, a decent amount of their time not writing actual code more facilitating and problem solving and strategizing with other engineers and, and other business uh, people to, to deliver a solution that meets the customer's needs. And so, you know, being okay as an engineer or technology person to have interactions, have conversations, being vulnerable and not, not always having to know the exact answer at that point in time, like those are the, the human aspects because at some point, you only write so much code in a given day. The real value in, in you as a leader and as a technology person is orchestrating and, and you know coordinating across many different people or maybe even many different organizations. So I'm hearing coordination. Um, I'm hearing understanding needs. I'm, I'm hearing that there's enough of the keyboard interaction that can regularly happen to produce the zeros and ones that make things look the way they're supposed to and the experience are supposed to. But not asking the question of why is that supposed to be doing that is something that's key. So getting to that the fundamental level of motivation behind why John or Jane Doe might be doing something and why a particular A-plus credit union, university, federal might be making the decisions that they're making about, hey, we're listening to John and Jane Doe, and they're telling us that they need for these things to happen. It seems like, of course, and it sounds like this is, well, gosh, this is easy. I just got to listen to folks. But it's not, in my mind, just as easy as listening to folks. It's genuinely listening and understanding the true motivation because somebody can say, I want an easier way to pay my bills. I need an easier way to open up an account. I need an easier way to transfer money to my kids in college that is instantaneous. That's a high level need. When you drill down on that, it involves so many other different nuances of what can or can't be part of that. I'm curious to understand the process that you guys at Q2 are taking, so a one of your financial institutions partners comes to you and says, I've got to have this type of functionality. And how do you guys approach that relative to the, we hear you, and then what? What does the, and then what look like from your guys' perspective, Ryan? Yeah, I think you know it goes back to your kind of initial point about talking to to these customers who you want to be partners is don't don't necessarily lead with the solution, right? It's like I need you to build this thing. It's like okay, well maybe I can, maybe I can't build that thing. But let's start off with the problem statement, and even if we do arrive at the same solution that you originally you know brought to me, I think what's probably not understood well is that even when an engineer has the, the well-defined solution, there's a bunch of micro decisions that they are making along the way that will impact you know, the, the final result. You want, you want them to be able to make some, 
some judgment calls. You don't want them to come back every time and say, well, what about this? And what about this? Right. It's, it's, you want them to have some, some understanding of the overall problem that they're solving. So when they're making those micro decisions, they're informed decisions that they're making and not just a flip of the coin kind of decision, whatever they feel like. And so um, starting off with the problem rather than the solution, I think is, is how we normally break through because maybe the answer is no, I can't build that specific solution, but tell me about what the problem is. And maybe there's alternative ways to achieve a solution. And because, you know, going back to our, our fundamental technology is a platform, we're going to continue to move that platform forward. And there are constraints about what can and can't be built on it, but that's all in the spirit of, of keeping you on a maintainable platform. So we can keep moving the platform forward and not breaking the things that you've built upon it along the way. So yeah, sometimes there are some hard, hard answers to deliver, which is a no, I can't build you that. But what if we did it this way? Tell me about the problem. If we did it, you know, slightly different, then it's a completely solvable, maintainable solution. Um, and and you still get what you need, which which is a, an answer to your to your needs, but it's in a way that's done differently. And so I think you know, coming in with an open mind, asking questions about not only their solution, but what about why they have this problem and what they're trying to solve, normally breaks down those barriers pretty well. Because <clears throat> simply being a a builder of a solution that's been presented to you. It, you know, that's, that's a vendor, you know, kind of relationship. That's just a transactional based thing. I need you to go build this thing. And there's plenty of other providers in the space that, that can do that. Really the value we bring is problem solving, understanding, you know, their, their nuances of, of their technology, what we bring to them and what they already have on the table and what can be, you know, reasonably executed with the tools that we have. The um, we have talked about this in a, a number of different previous live casts. Um, the power of asking the question "Why," um, and a very wise mentor of mine many years ago talked to me about the three different levels of why. And I'm quite certain this is from a, an excellent leadership book of which I've been blessed to read a number of those. And by the way, I'm going to be asking you in a little bit, Ryan, about something that uh, a, a recommendation from a current author of her book that you've read recently that might be um, of particular value for our audience. But yeah. the for us and for me, it's you can ask somebody once, why do you want that built? And they're going to give you an answer. And that's going to be the first level answer associated with why they need it built. And it's going to fall along the lines because John and Jane Doe told us they did. Senior management or the CEO decided that it needed to be done. There's some sort of a reason why that first level of why is actually being answered. You can then go to the second level of, okay, I understood that John and Jane Doe have told you that they want it to be built. Why do you think they want it? to be built. Second level, you're diving a little bit deeper to understand motivation and the true rationale and reasoning behind it. And that might require a little bit more thought or perspective from folks. Well, wait a minute. So we've been told to do this. We're doing it. We believe it's the right thing, but why do we think that they want to actually do it? And then there's going to be another answer. Well, because it's going to allow their experience with us to be better. It's going to make them more efficient. It's going to make them whatever. And that's the second level of Awesome. Again, more information. And then, not on the annoying side, but asking the third level of why, which is essentially the same question, which is, okay, so you guys have decided to do this and you're doing it because John and Jane have decided that they want to get it done because of these reasons. Why are they asking for this to be done and what defines success for them it's the third level of why. And that's usually when you can get to true motivation and understanding of what the true purpose of this particular, I need you to build this, really is. And if you look at those three different levels, when you get down to the true fundamental level of motivation, it can be completely different from what the first reason was. And you can find yourself getting potentially into hot water because the original reason why it was said to be done isn't in alignment with the true motivation behind that. Something that we've, uh, I, I learned a very long time ago, and it's something that I'm curious, 
Has that come into play with you guys any much in terms of you need you to build this and then you're starting to build it and three or four months later, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a minute, shift, pivot, change, whatever, because it's changed. Would love to get your comments and thoughts on that, Ryan. Yeah, you know, you know that that's what was the spirit of agile development. You know, was to to iterate quickly, to get an understanding, to get feedback, and to to start small and not have this big monumental thing that you deliver that turns out to be not even what your customers wanted or what the intended stakeholders wanted. And so, um, yeah, I think that that happens all the time. Some of that happens with just upfront discussions. But some of that happens by simply, you know, finding smaller iterative chunks of software and projects to deliver so that you get that first thing out the door, you get the feedback and what you thought, even what they thought they heard their customer saying is not actually what it was, right? It's it's something completely different. And so I, I think, yeah, you know, humans, humans are flawed, obviously. And so we hear what we want to hear a lot of times and, and what means one thing to one person may be a completely different thing to another person. And it is time consuming. Having conversations is time consuming. Sometimes they're uncomfortable. Sometimes you just rather put on your headphones and code, but it's an important aspect of engineering. I think that is, is often lost in, in quite frankly, college or, or what people expect, right? We write all these tech books all the time. We send people to get computer science degrees and we teach them all the algorithms that they need and in all of the, the you know, languages, coding languages that, that they may, may need to encounter. But the truth is majority of the job is interacting with humans, shipping software, getting feedback from humans and, and iterating on that. And so algorithms are common. If you don't know the algorithm, it's just a Google away. And so like, you know, testing on algorithms is probably not the best indicator of a successful engineer in, in a large organization. It's about communication and patience and listening and understanding that that really differentiates the best, I think, within our organization, at least. It gets back to that patience and understanding and listening that we've been talking about throughout. Um, and I can guarantee you that if you asked any of my three business partners, if they want me to just put on headphones and code, there would be a very resounding answer to that, which is, Step away from the head, you know, headphones, <laughs> Mr. Toll. Stop coding. Let the professionals stay in your lane. Let the professionals do their job. So um, I can speak to that most certainly. And uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll be hearing about that probably shortly thereafter this uh, livecast, as a matter of fact. Um, last question for you as we get close to the top of the hour. Um, what are you reading or have you read that uh, would be of particular interest, interest for our audience to understand and possibly get some good insight from? Yeah, the one that I've been passing around amongst my team, I actually have it right here, I just got it returned, is a, uh, a book that uh, is, you know, I think hit, hits home. It's, it's a book called uh, Staff Engineer Leadership Beyond the Management Track. Uh, we can find a link for it. But the, the premise is, is, is management is not for everybody, right? Like being a people manager is not for everybody, but it seems like an inevitable place that you have to end up once you reach some limit in your in your career as an individual contributor, right? Uh, I'm pretty proud that Q2 has a very clear uh, individual contributor track all the way up to a functional equivalent of an SVP, which we call a senior fellow. Um, that said, how do you be a leader without being a manager, I think is a skill that that is not well discussed or defined. And so it's one thing to be to have influence and be a leader because somebody appointed you to be their boss. It's another thing to be a leader and have influence simply because you're well-respected, you communicate well, you work well with other people. And so I think this book does a good job of just, just pulling apart that, that thought of like, what does it mean to be a senior engineer in a rather large organization, right? I mean, if, if the company you work for is going to have any degree of success, it's going to be hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands maybe of people at some point. And so simply being a, a very good Python programmer or C-sharp programmer is only going to get you so far. Being a, being a leader across the organization that has influence and, and uh, perspective is, is really what stands out. And so this is, this is one book that I found that, that helps unpack that a little bit because there's plenty of management books there's plenty of technology programming books, but what's what's the in-between for a lot of people? And so 
So that's the kind of one that I'm, I'm passing around and, and thinking through these days. Excellent. And thank you for that. We'll make sure that we capture that in our notes and send that out as we continue to let people capture this. And I want to thank you for your time today, Ryan. I know we're at the top of the hour and want to be respectful of that as well as to our listening audience, both now and in the future. Um, as we wrap up today's um, uh, live cast on humanizing software, first and foremost, again, thank you, Ryan. We certainly appreciate your um, excitement for what you're doing, your passion for how you're trying to make uh, Q2 and doing a successful job of it as a differentiated company that's out there. Um, and as we look to continue the conversations, again, please visit our website at tailwindsw.com. Engage with us digitally on uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and listen for us next week as we invite Don Isbell to talk to us a little bit from Razor Vision about his perspective on where the uh, financial side of things are with humanizing software. So as we close out today's episode, and as I'll always mention to everybody, please take one step today to do something unique or different to help someone else and make their day better. So we wish everybody a very, very good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Humanizing Software with Andrew Tall. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.